You can be seated. For those of you who have gone rappelling in your life, you will remember, especially the first time that you did it, the uh, unnatural feeling of getting to the edge of a cliff and then having to lean back and put your weight on the harness and the ropes that you're strapped into. It doesn't feel natural at all, and uh, it goes against your better inclinations. When I worked as a guide, I had the privilege of having a front row seat time and time and time again to people going through that moment. Uh, needing the, the encouragement, you can do it, then the kind of talking about all of the, all, this was a commercial setting, so we had lots of redundancy in the system. We had two harnesses, two sets of ropes, three different anchors, and pointed at all of that, and then watching them as they finally had the courage just to let go of their fear, to lean back into the harness and start to go over the edge, and then, you know, you, you hear the hollers on the way down. Sometimes it was tears all the way down, quite honestly. Maybe that was your experience and you never went again. Um, and that's okay. You don't have to like this to get this illustration. Um, the, the point I want to make from that is that faith, what we're called to in the Christian life, is all about trust. It's, it's all about entrusting our lives into the hands of a God that has revealed himself to us through his son Jesus and through the scriptures that we have. And it, it requires or it calls us to letting go and, and, and putting our lives into his hands solely. So that, that's the basic invitation that we offer to the world as those who follow Jesus. Trust this God. Give him your life. Lean into him. But it begs a question, doesn't it? Is he trustworthy? Is he faithful? And it's a fair question. If we're asking you as somebody who may be here looking and exploring the Christian faith... Uh, and all of us who are here, if we've called Jesus our king, to put our trust in this God, then it begs the question of whether or not he's faithful. We, we want assurance that he, in fact, is worthy of our trust. We want to know that the anchor will hold us. Last week, we began a series on the gospel of God on Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And we saw that God was the source of the gospel. And that he had ensured a way for the gospel to be rightly preserved and transmitted directly to us. We have, and this is an amazing gift, we have access to the pure source of the gospel, the spirit-inspired apostolic testimony of the apostles of Jesus in this book that we call the Bible in the scriptures. And this week, as we turn to verse 2 of Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces us to this question of God's faithfulness a question that occupies him throughout much of this letter to the church in Rome remember a letter that was written about 25 years after the life death and resurrection of Jesus to a church there that needed encouragement and exhortation and Paul raises this topic in this way by asking essentially what is the relationship between the gospel of God what God has done and revealed about himself and his purposes in Jesus, his son, and what God had already spoken previous to this new thing that he was doing in Jesus. In other words, does God's work in Jesus fulfill and complete the work that he had been doing up to this point? Or does the gospel of Jesus entail in some way a departure from the past, a break, a kind of erasing of the whiteboard and starting afresh that could actually call the character of God 
and the trustworthiness of God into question. Many Harry Potter fans were upset in 2016 when J.K. Rowling published Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which wasn't an eighth novel in the series, but from their eyes was just an apparently confusing, unreadable script for a theater production that Rowling co-authored with a few others. These fans felt that the characterization in this new book was different from what it was in the novels and that there were inconsistencies in the world created in the novels with what was again represented in this book. Maybe that was some of you, I don't know. There was an outcry though that she wasn't creating consistently with what had come before. And that outcry existed in the first century in the face particularly of widespread Jewish unbelief about Jesus that God had done something that wasn't consistent with what had come before, that perhaps he had taken his plans and watered them up and thrown them in the wastebasket and continued with something new. And there was a charge about inconsistency and a lack of fidelity to his word. The faithfulness of God matters greatly. It mattered greatly to Paul. It, matters greatly, it mattered greatly to the earliest Christians and Jews of the first century and it honestly matters greatly for us. So we're going to look at verse 2 in three, with three sections. First, at Paul's claim. Second, at how that claim is substantiated. And then third, and perhaps most importantly and practically, why that matters to us. So first, Paul's claim. His claim is that this gospel about Jesus, and we'll focus more on the content of this gospel when we, when we get together again next week, that this is the gospel which he, if you look with me at verse 2, which he, that is God, so set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. That is to say, Paul says, this is a claim to consistency. God was not throwing something in the wastebasket and starting over, but God was fulfilling what he had promised beforehand through the, through the prophets in the holy scriptures. That's his claim. It's not a change of direction. It's a fulfillment of what had been promised. We need to understand just how central this was in terms of the burden of this letter. The gospel about Jesus reveals, as Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 1, the righteousness of God. The precise meaning of this phrase, the righteousness of God, is hotly debated in biblical studies. But it certainly means at least the attributes and actions of God that are revealed through God's saving work for us in his son, Jesus, what we're calling the gospel. This saving action reveals and exhibits the character of the creator God and shows us his truthfulness, his power, his justice, his love. And his faithfulness to his covenant with his people Israel. And by virtue of being faithful to Israel. His faithfulness to his creation at large. This is addressed explicitly in chapters 3, 9, 11 and 15. Listen to how Paul actually completes his argument. In this great letter. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 15. And listen for these themes of faithfulness. He says... For I tell you that the Messiah became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then he goes on to quote for 
Old Testament passages about the Gentiles being brought in to worship the one true living God with the Jewish people. Which is, is of course, the gospel that he proclaims is creating these communities of Jew and Gentile worshiping the living God together. It is a masterful finish to the book of Romans in Romans 15 that says in every clear way that this gospel was indeed promised beforehand by the apostles in the Holy Scriptures. What he begins here in verse 2 of chapter 1. It is, yes, a fresh and shocking revelation. What Paul says elsewhere was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So there was a sense in which no one saw this coming. It was unusual. It wasn't what we would have made up or even expected. But it was so deeply consistent with what God had been telling us all along, but we just couldn't see. It was deep and consistent in a far more real way than anyone could have imagined. So that's his claim. The gospel of God, which is all about Jesus, is the goal to which the scriptures of God, and when Paul uses the word scriptures here in verse 2, he means what we call the Old Testament. It's that the point to which those scriptures uh, is, is looking. So if that's his claim, and that's an important claim, uh, let's think secondly about how this claim is substantiated. It happens in two ways, on a micro level and then on a macro level. So on, on the micro level first, Paul, as his words in verse 2 suggest, there are key Old Testament passages that are directly fulfilled by the work of God in Jesus. For example, Matthew's gospel. This is central to his theology because there are 10 what we call fulfillment quotations in the gospel of Matthew that go like this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he'll quote from Isaiah. Matthew is very consciously telling his story about Jesus as the fulfillment of all that God had promised before. And he goes to text after text to show us this. There are hundreds of examples of this. Let's just consider one that we already heard this this morning from Jeremiah chapter 33. In verse 17 of Jeremiah 33, the prophet Jeremiah says this, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Well, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament gospel of God about Jesus will know that Jesus was announced, his birth was announced as the one who would come and sit on the throne of his father David. And so here in a very micro way, there's a specific text which is echoing back to the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that God made to David that he would uh, cause a son of David to sit on his throne forever. Jeremiah 33 is just picking that up. And the New Testament is telling us that specific promise is fulfilled in the gospel of Jesus. This was in fact promised beforehand by by the prophets through the Holy Scriptures. So that's a micro way that this is Um, substantiated but there is a macro level to this as well and that is that the old testament is telling us a story about God and his creation and his covenant with Israel it is a true story the true story about God and his world and it's a story that's looking for an ending awaiting fulfillment at the end of the old testament period God's people are still somewhat in exile They've come back to the land, but nothing like what it used to be. Foreigners are ruling over them. They're not free. The nations are not yet flocking to Jerusalem to worship the true and living God. They're not yet a blessing to all of the descendants, uh, all the nations of the earth. And God's promises to come and to rule, to restore, to return to Zion and to forgive their sins and to renew creation and to bring in the Gentiles and to put an heir on David's throne. 
all of those promises when we get to the Old Testament are yet to be fulfilled. The Old Testament, that is, leads us to a place of waiting. Waiting for the final act when God would make good on the promises that he had made to his people. And through his people to all his creation. And the Jewish people in Jesus' day, as he enters the scene, were discussing and debating just how would God bring to the climax all of the promises that he had made already. What would bring in the new era of forgiveness and provision and peace and renewal and defeat of God's enemies and judgment on the wicked and the liberation of God's people that they were longing for? When would God come to dwell with his people? That's where we find ourselves at the end of the narrative of the Old Testament. In walks Jesus in the first century. And you might remember what he says when he begins his ministry. He says repent he says no the kingdom of God is at hand the rule of God is at hand repent and believe the good news repentance is the first word of the gospel it means to change one's mind to think again to turn around and believe the good news Jesus walks in and says this is all happening now Those promises are being fulfilled now. And every book of the New Testament from Matthew at the beginning to Revelation at the end says again and again to us loudly and clearly that the story that was awaiting fulfillment that was the Old Testament was finally coming to its climax and completion in what God was doing in Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ coming to dwell again among his people to take the rightful throne as the sovereign king of the universe and this is what the new testament proclaims again and again the whole symphony that is finds its resolution in the notes that ring out from the gospel of jesus christ they have been anticipated and implicit in all the movements of the symphony that have come up to this point but when we get to this final climax all of it finds resolution in the story in the life in the death and the resurrection of jesus We all know what it's like to anticipate the ending of a story. How will this story end? How will it unfold? Will goodness prevail? Will there be a plot twist or something unexpected that was revealed? This is what good storytellers do and movies do. They get you on the edge of your seat waiting for the moment that things would become clear. That things would be resolved. And at this point in time, God's people were waiting and they were asking, who will sit on David's throne? How would Abraham, in fact, be a blessing to the nations? How would God be faithful to his covenant to Israel when Israel herself was so tragically caught up in the power and bondage of sin? How would God judge rightly and his justice prevail and yet still be faithful to his people who were guilty? How would the nations come into Israel? How would forgiveness be granted? How would the sin of Israel and the nations be atoned for and resolved and dealt with? How in the world would God make all things new? Because that was what they were longing for. A new heavens and a new earth. Read Isaiah 65. And the New Testament shows up and Jesus shows up. And the answer again and again on every page of the New Testament is simple. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is how these questions would be resolved. This is how things would come to a fulfillment and a climax. This is the macro way in which Paul's claim that this promise was, that this gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Because the story that those scriptures tell led us to this moment when God would break in in a way that no one really expected. And yet that fulfilled every promise that had been made and every thread in the narrative. 
beautifully and wonderfully. God would humble himself and enter into the world as a baby, helpless. God would move through this earth speaking and addressing us, calling us his friends, yet becoming a forsaken and betrayed friend, alone and crucified as a criminal on a Roman cross. God would become a savior that was upside down to start a kingdom that turned the world's powers upside down. And this is how he would be faithful to the story that he had begun in the creation of the world. It is astonishing and overwhelming and wonderful that this is how God would do his great work. So let's then think about why this matters. And why it matters about scripture and about God and about ourselves. It matters what Paul claims in verse 2. That God had promised this beforehand. That God was in fact being consistent and faithful in what he did in Jesus. Because it helps us understand that the Old Testament doesn't reveal a different God from the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is popular. This is a claim that's often made out in the world today. That the God of the Old Testament is a God of vengeance and wrath. The God of the New Testament is really the one you want to know. God of love and mercy. And what we want to say strongly to that, rep, to that criticism is that no, the God who is revealed in the creation story in Genesis 1 is the same God who is revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. It's one and the same. He's still a God of judgment and justice. He's still a God of mercy and grace. A God whose forgiveness and steadfast love overwhelms that aspect of his character that demands his justice. But this is a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we read our scriptures as one cohesive whole, not like Marcion, the second century heretic, who said that the Old Testament did produce a, or did declare a vengeful and wrathful God that wasn't consistent with the God known in Jesus. No, we reject that and we say we read this together and we do this on the basis of Jesus himself, of course, who after his resurrection to his disciples in Luke chapter 24 says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, in the entire scriptures that they would have called them the scriptures. We call them the Old Testament. Must be fulfilled, he says. These are words that were written about me. They point to me. As he says in John chapter 5. Augustine famously wrote. The new is in the old concealed. And the old is in the new revealed. And what he means is that, is that the message of Jesus, the gospel, is there in the Old Testament. Admittedly and honestly, it takes greater care for us to see Jesus in the story of, of let's say, of the, the judges, for example, though he is there, than it does to see Jesus in the story told by Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. But he's deeply there. That's what Augustine is affirming. In the old concealed. The stories of Samuel and Saul and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elisha and Jonah all have Jesus deeply in them. Joseph and his brothers, Abraham and, and uh, the promises made to him all have Jesus uh, in them. He is their subject, as Jesus says in Luke 24. So this matters. This claim that Paul makes in verse 2. That this was promised beforehand. The Old Testament provides the foundation and informs the plot line at every point. And this helps us to deeply understand really what God has done in Jesus. Many years ago, I was finishing the Chronicles of Narnia. I should say finishing for what I'll explain in a moment. The Chronicles of Narnia with my three younger kids. So we were reading The Last Battle and it was exciting and wonderful. And Lewis, such a great storyteller, brings threads from all the previous books into the conclusion. 
The only problem was is that we didn't start with The Magician's Nephew, the first book. We started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, I say that except for that my son and I had actually read that The Magician's Nephew a year before. So we're reading it, and he and I are picking up all that's going on. At times, there's a kind of vexed look on the, look on the face of his sisters, which is as exacerbated by his look of like, I know what's happening here, and you don't. <laughs> but there's that, there's that sense in which if we don't, if we don't know the backstory then we don't know the full, wonderful riches of what God is doing in Jesus. Now, I don't want to mislead you and say that you can't pick up the New Testament and understand so much about the beauty and wonder and love and character and grace of a God that you long for and that made you. You absolutely can. And that's the beauty of this gospel is that it can be understood with very little background. But we must say as the church that we are to read and digest and mark and, and, and dig into the Old Testament itself. Because when we understand all that had come before. And then when Jesus steps on the scene and says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. We know so much more about what God is intending and doing in the person of his son. Not only does it help us to understand the fullness of the story. But it also helps us to interpret what exactly God is doing in Jesus. Because there are a lot of misinterpretations or a lot of reductionistic understandings of that, what God is doing in Jesus out there. And so when we understand the fullness of the narrative, we are brought in to understand more deeply and to handle more accurately that which God is doing in Jesus. So the scriptures are a unified whole. And to connect this to last week, when we talked about the source of the gospel as the scriptures, I would say very clearly that the Old Testament is itself a source of this gospel. That's what Paul is saying in verse 2. That on these pages we find gospel. Yes, concealed. Coming to its fulfillment in Jesus. But what does it say perhaps more importantly? Why does this matter about God? Why does this matter about God? It's because what we find here is that God is deeply, deeply faithful this tells us that God doesn't change that God doesn't make campaign promises that he can't fulfill that God doesn't just speak words that are expedient for the moment and discard them for ones that he think will be more appropriate for the next he is not erratic but he is consistent and faithful through and through as surprising as the gospel of Jesus actually was and remains in many ways. God's work in and through this gospel is what Paul is saying throughout the book of Romans, the greatest expression of his faithfulness that we could ever know and see. At the heart of the gospel of God is the faithful God of the gospel who never defaults on his word on his promises so Paul can say in 2nd Corinthians chapter 1 God is faithful for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus that's an astonishing claim again we must understand that God's fidelity was under question it was under fire because of just how shocking and surprising that he would enter into the flesh as a human baby and die on a Roman cross no one really saw that coming even if Isaiah 52 and 53 helps us understand it and so this claim that Paul is making in verse 2 as he introduces it here 
is so central to understanding that the God that we worship, the God that we proclaim, is a God who is deeply faithful and who will never not be faithful. Faithful to every word that he had spoken before. Faithful to every word that he has spoken and, and he is not yet fulfilled. And that's what's interesting for us. And this gets into the third dimension of why it matters. It matters about the word of God because it's a unified whole. Old and New Testaments go together. It matters about the character of God because God is truly faithful. But this matters deeply because remember where we began. The invitation of our proclamation is for you, very personally, to entrust your life to this God. To hand over your life to him. That's what this is all about. But the reality is, is all of us know that living in the world that we do, that we wrestle with struggles and doubts and hardships that are a very real part of our lives. And in the midst of personal pain and disappointment, of struggle with evil and suffering, of being hurt deeply and painfully, perhaps by those that we thought loved us dearly, the question that we are likely to be asking and that the enemy of God wants us to ask is this. Is God really good? And is he good to me? Can he really be trusted? That's the question he asked in Genesis chapter 3. One of the first times I really wrestled with this, I remember, was when I was in college. And it was in one year where my closest friend was killed in a car accident. And the father of the woman that I was growing to love, who became my wife, died suddenly of a brain tumor. And I remember wrestling with these questions. And in many ways, I wrestle with them still, and so do you. They are the questions that we wrestle with as the people of God. The name Israel means one who wrestles with God. Don't think that we don't stop wrestling. We do. These questions, this question matters. Can I trust you, God? Can I really lean back at the edge of this cliff that I'm facing and put my weight upon you? And the argument that Paul makes throughout this book of Romans and introduces here in verse 2 is emphatically, yes, you can trust him. You can give him your life. He has been faithful to what he spoke before, which means for those of us who live still waiting for his return, that he will absolutely and utterly be faithful to every promise that he has made that has yet to be fulfilled, which is that he will return and eradicate evil from this world and bring about through an infusion of his grace and power the new heavens and the new earth and give you and me a new body. Thanks be to God as our bodies grow older. He'll give us a new body and we will reign with his son forever in his presence forever. No longer needing a sun and a moon but enjoying him being in his presence once and for all. No longer seeing as in a mirror dimly but now face to face. That is the promise and it's not yet here and so we still struggle and we groan and Romans deals with this when it especially gets to Romans chapter 8 and we wait but the word that Paul says here in verse 2 of chapter 1 this, this reality of God's character being faithful means that we can genuinely trust him today and we can genuinely be a people of hope as we look to the future. And trusting God, God's fidelity and faithfulness is categorically different than the best versions of faithfulness and fidelity that we encounter in our world today. Our oldest child is a freshman in college. And when she was a toddler, uh, she and I just had a deep connection through her jumping off of her bed into my arms. Or we would often go to the stairs and she would climb up to stairs like five or six 
and jump off the arms into, uh, jump off the stairs into my arms. And I would catch her, and it was kind of a, a part of our bonding. Well, one time we had a Rwandan pastor and his wife visiting us from Africa, staying in our house. And I think Chloe and I thought, you know, we, we should show them what we do together. And so we went onto the stairs, and she climbed up to like the sixth stair. And then, you know, I put my arms out, and she jumped. But at that moment, I, something kind of went wrong, and I missed her. And she kind of hit me, and then I think I grabbed her ankle on her way down. Thankfully, this was a carpeted staircase, by the way. And she kind of crumpled on the floor, and I think our Rwandan guests were like, is this what crazy Americans do to their kids? (laughs) I think God was just judging us for wanting to show off or something, but I dropped her. And even that kind of fidelity of a parent who loves their child deeply isn't ever going to be 100%. There is no one who is faithful in this realm that can withstand the full onslaught of a broken world. And if we try to lean back at the top of the cliff and put our lives into the hands of someone else, usually it's ourselves, we will be sorely disappointed. And at some point or other, we will be dropped. But the amazing news of the gospel, the amazing God of the gospel, is that he is faithful through and through and through. And he will never drop you. He will never let you down. He will never not fulfill his word. He will never be unfaithful. And you can bank your life on him. The gospel of God was promised long before. And as we see it unfold, we know that God is deeply faithful. You know, the We're, as a Christian people, we're called to be a people of hope. And our hope is simply in the word of God, isn't it? It's in the promises that God has made that have not yet been fulfilled. And as I'll close our service today again with a benediction from Romans 15, as I've done many times, this is is what Paul does as he gets to that point right after he says that God has been true to his promises, he's been true to the patriarchs, that the Gentiles might come and worship God with the Jewish people. He then says, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you might abound in hope. Just recognize that the context for that call to hope comes because God has been faithful to his promises. God has been faithful to his word. And if God has been faithful to what he spoke in the Old Testament, God will be faithful to what he has spoken in the New. We can bank our lives on his faithfulness and fidelity. So that's the invitation to all of us again. To bring our lives and to lean into him. To trust in his faithfulness. He will never disappoint. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a faithful father. For those of us this morning for whom that is a real struggle to believe. Perhaps because of intellectual barriers. Or circumstantial barriers things that we wrestle with deeply in our lives. I pray that you, Lord, would again overwhelm us with your faithfulness. That you would again renew our faith in your holding us, in your being true, in you never changing, in your word never failing. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are marked by this kind of reassurance that faithful is he who called us, you who called us, and you will complete, bring, us, bring to completion the good work that you have begun in us on the day of Christ Jesus. We look forward, O oh God, to that day. We know that it will come. We thank you for the hope that we have in your Son.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.